verses 15 through 19. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stopped giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength? Will you pray with me? Father, open the eyes of our heart to the glory revealed in your word. For we wish to give give thanks to you for the immeasurable greatness of knowing you and being loved by you. These things we offer to you for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thankful to be gathered with you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn, to turn to the book of Acts. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my joy to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be, uh, the end of 18 and then into the beginning of chapter 19. One of the greatest joys about being a pastor here, I think, is getting to be a part of membership and baptism interviews. And in these interviews, we ask to hear your testimony. We want to know how God has been at work throughout your life and your understanding of his grace to you in Jesus Christ. We ask questions of doctrine and practice, and then we also explain what we believe in this particular local church about those things. Questions about involvement as well in the church and where you are serving or where you could see yourself serving. And often when doing these things, I will ask the simple question, can you tell me the good news of Jesus Christ. Can you tell me the gospel is what it comes down to? Now, if you've been thinking about being baptized or becoming a member, I don't want to scare you into thinking that we're looking for a perfect presentation of the gospel. I promise you we aren't grading you, and I promise you won't hear, huh, well, that was horrible. (laughs) That's not it at all. But friends, there has to be some understanding, some recognition, an ability to articulate what God has done for you in Jesus Christ in order that you might be able to explain it to others. Being a disciple of Christ requires no less of us than that. This means certain things should be evident in us telling the gospel to others, like why it's called the good news and what that means necessarily about there being bad news. Or what Jesus did about the bad news in his life, his death, his resurrection. What does he call all people to do today? Certainly the gospel is more than these things, but it is definitely not less. And as we turn our attention to the end of Acts chapter 18 and into chapter 19 today, we find that there is certainly more that needs to be understood. There is an incomplete revelation which results in an insufficient discipleship. Significant pieces of the puzzle are missing. And therefore, the picture is not complete until someone gives them the full revelation. So let's jump into the end of Acts chapter 18. We're going to read these two accounts. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus although he he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. 
For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? He asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in all. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much uh, for your church being gathered this morning. Thank you that we were able to worship you in spirit and in truth, and I pray simply now that we would continue that worship through the study uh, of this passage. Help us to see how Christ is exalted from here, and may you be glorified from it. Turn our hearts and our minds, which are so easily distracted, to you now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Last week, Jeff narrowed in on Apollos to show us what it looks like to submit to godly leaders and how to be helpful to the church overall. So this week, we're really going to be looking at these two passages from a bird's eye view and kind of landing on different themes that pertain to discipleship. So we're going to look at these two sections as a whole and see how they address the problem of an incomplete revelation. So the main point of our passage, it's in your bulletin if you have one and it flows right into our outline. Here it is. Jesus has come as the prophesied Messiah. Therefore, repent and recognize him. Know and honor him and faithfully follow him. Let's jump into point number one, repent and recognize him. Fundamental to the message of Christianity is the need for change. As we read through God's word, he reveals something to us about ourselves, that we have sinned and that we have rebelled against him, that we have missed the mark completely in regard to his standard of conduct and holiness, and that in and of ourselves and left to our own devices, we have gone astray. You see, he created us to live in a certain way, and we ignore that for our own wants, our own desires, our own preferences. And because of this rebellion, the Bible tells us, we are justly deserving of his wrath and punishment. A holy God cannot look upon sin, look upon rebellion, and not judge it, for that would be against his very character. And then as we continue reading through the scriptures, we come to some other startling news. There is nothing that we can do about this dilemma. We can't live good enough lives to overcome it. We can't clothe enough poor people to make up for it. We can't pray enough prayers, follow enough rules, or do any amount of things to change our guilty standing before God. In all respects, our sinful condition isn't good news. But then as you continue to grow and you come to understand the storyline of scripture, you come to see this glimmer of hope. And really it's a glimmer of hope that by the end of the Bible, it's a beacon of hope. In the Old Testament about a specific person who will redeem a specific people, promises made that end up being kept. Because as you continue to learn about this marvelous and gracious God who loves us so much in the midst of our sin to not leave us by ourselves, to not leave us as just trying to be a better person or trying to be a more moral person, but who loves us so much that he decides to redeem and rescue a people unto himself. And how does he do this? He does this through his son, Jesus Christ. 
who he sent to be the propitiation. That is the sacrifice who on the cross bore our sin and guilt and faced the wrath of God in our place so that when God looks at you who are in Christ, he sees the sacrifice of his son Jesus. And that means that if you're in Christ this morning, he now looks at you favorably because of him. He is our propitiation. So the million dollar question has to be, how do I respond to this amazing news? First, you need to repent and recognize him. It is, as Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, in our story here in Acts chapter 18 and 19, repentance in a form had taken place. If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, he was a prophet. He was a spokesperson for God who came before Jesus announcing and heralding that the Messiah is coming. The Savior of the world is coming. And based off our text, both Apollos and these disciples, they heard this message and they responded to it. They were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And the thrust of John's message was the need for repentance evidenced through baptism. This is what characterized John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance or a baptism to evidence your repentance. Confess your sins now, he's saying, for the king is coming. And again, it's clear from the text that Apollos heard this and he did it. And so did the disciples at the beginning of chapter 19. Apollos probably knew some of what Jesus had done, probably what he had taught and some of the miracles, but he didn't have instant updates on his phone. The disciples of John knew of John's baptism, but they had no knowledge of what the true Messiah had done. They were awaiting the Messiah and seeking to live holy lives, but they had no knowledge of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his great commission mandate, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. They had an incomplete revelation, which leads to an incomplete Christianity. But don't miss this from the text. They responded to the Messiah's herald. They responded to the message and were awaiting more. Friends, this message that John was proclaiming was really hard for the Jews to hear. At the beginning of August, we had youth camp up in Montana, and it was truly a great time. I know the students had a great time, but I truly believe that many of them grew in their knowledge and in their love for the Lord. Their relationships were deepened with Him. But while we were there, I gave each camper an itinerary. And during one of the hour or so blocks before dinner, I had this written in the itinerary, free time slash, in all capitals, shower. (laughs) Why is that? Because teenagers often stink, and they need to be reminded of certain things. None of you guys do. I'm just saying it, okay? They need to be reminded of certain things. Now, imagine this. I come up to you in the grand hall. We talk for a minute. You tell me how the Lord is at work in your life. And then afterwards, I say, I think you really need a bath maybe, just maybe, we're starting to understand how the Jews felt at John's message. They prided themselves on being clean, being clean in regards to diet and hand washing and how they dressed in their minds all directly affected their cleanliness before the Lord. And John comes saying to the Jews, I am the one promised by the prophets who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And it's my job to get you ready. And to be ready, you need to repent and be baptized. You need to have a heart that is prepared to respond to him. Why is it rude to tell someone who is not your child or teenager that they need a bath? Because that means that they are dirty and stinky. And so when John says, be baptized, he's telling the Jews, you're not ready for the Messiah. 
You're actually not clean. In fact, you are dirty. It's a really hard message to hear and respond to. But like any message from the Lord, some do respond and some don't. And is it not the same for us today? There are those here right now hearing my words and Jesus' call to repent who will ignore it. Your heart reveals itself to be hardened. Like the Jews who were shocked at being called dirty, you feel shocked that someone would tell you that you need to change, that in and of yourself you aren't good enough. Everyone else would tell you that you are, that you just need more self-love, that you're fine just the way you are. But we here believe that telling you that is the furthest thing from love. You see, you were created in the image of God, and that, has, uh, that esteems you with dignity and honor and worth. But we are fallen creatures as well. In fact, we love you so much that we want to tell you that the exhaustion that you feel from trying to measure up, the anxiety you feel about never being good enough, has some truth to it because your focus is on yourself rather than on Jesus Christ. When your focus is on Him, you don't have to measure up. He deemed you worthy enough to die for. When your focus is on Him, you can combat that anxiety with the truth, I'm not good enough, but praise God that Jesus is and that He calls me His own. There's only one way for that to be true of you today, for him to call you his own, and that is that you repent and recognize him. Acknowledge your standing before God and cast yourself on his grace and mercy that he shows to you in Jesus Christ. And then recognize Jesus. Another way to say recognize is to believe in or to trust in, to trust that what Jesus Christ did for you is more than good enough, and you don't have to keep trying to measure up. Notice what Apollos and the disciples of John both did when they were instructed. They recognized Jesus. The baptism that they had first done in response to John's message was in preparation to see the Messiah, not in light of his finished work. So when they were further instructed about Jesus and that the Messiah had actually come, they put their faith in him. They stopped looking for something or someone else to come, and they recognized the one who did come. So I pray that would be true for the one here today that is yet to do that, that is yet to repent and recognize him. And for the many of us who have, then we are called to know and honor him. Know and honor him. Acts chapter 18, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Skipping down to chapter 19, verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Earlier in this message, I said fundamental to the message of Christianity is the need for change. But here I also want to say fundamental to being a disciple of Jesus is knowing and honoring him. In light of an incomplete revelation in this passage, but in light of our full revelation today in Jesus Christ, fundamental to being a disciple of Jesus is knowing and honoring him. So let me discuss knowing him first, just a sub-point in the outline. In our passage this morning, this is what Apollos demonstrates so well. This is an eloquent man, the scriptures tell us. He had been hard at work searching, reading, learning the Old Testament so that he might have a knowledge of God. That was the revelation he had up until this point. He had some knowledge of a coming Messiah. He even taught some things accurately about Jesus, but he was only calling people to John's baptism, not to a Christian baptism. But he is skilled. In many regards, Apollos was probably the celebrity Christian preacher of this early church. 
He was skilled in rhetoric and he knew how to debate the Jews concerning the Messiah. But not only does Luke tell us that he was competent in the scriptures, he tells us that he was fervent in spirit. We looked at last week how that word fervent actually means boiling or boiling over. In other words, his, he is spilling over in his spirit. This message cannot be contained. His love and devotion to God and to the extent at which he knows God requires that he speaks of God. He was a student of scripture, but he wasn't characterized by being a boring debater. No, he was passionate about God and that came through in his speech and conduct. And the way that knowledge of the scriptures and zeal and spirit go together is important as well. Knowledge of the scriptures is put first here by Luke, for that should always moderate our zeal. We are governed by God's word to us. So I want to say that clearly. We are governed by God's word to us. But within that governance, I would argue you cannot have enough zeal. Many of us can grow in our zeal for the Lord, can we not? But more often than not, the problem with us growing in our knowledge of the scriptures is that it has somehow divorced many of us from our zeal, which should never be the case. John Calvin wrote that doctrine without zeal is one of three things, a sword in the hand of a madman, a dead thing like a sword laying on the ground cold and without use, or something to be used for vain or wicked boasting. Applying this to our hearts, does that characterize you? Do you bully others with your knowledge of the scriptures? Or do you boast about your knowledge, subtly trying to correct everyone and what they say? Honestly, I don't think the pastors and elders see a ton of that here. I think more likely, friends, do you just feel a dryness as you have gained in your knowledge of the scriptures? You have lost your first love. Life gets busy. Too many things creep into the schedule over the years. You have grown in, their, in your knowledge, but there is a lack in zeal. You're tired. So may this text be a balm to the weary soul here this morning. This side of eternity, there will be seasons of dryness, seasons of fighting for joy, seasons of depression and despair, and the opposite as well. But in the midst of all of those, cling to what is true, that in Christ you are a new creation, that the old has passed away, and that his love for you does not ebb and flow like your zeal for him. His love for you is constant, ever-present, always flowing forth from the seat of mercy. So rest in that. And pray that God would renew your zeal. Lean into the spiritual disciplines. Plant yourself in community. Sit under and glean from faithful preaching and teaching and watch how over the months and the years God does a work in your life. True heart and head knowledge of God affects, directly affects how you live this life. The saying is true. Right thinking leads to right living. There's a problem then if knowledge and zeal aren't tethered together like they are here for Apollos. If you have knowledge without zeal, you end up getting an unproductive Christian who leans towards Phariseeism. Zeal without knowledge, you end up running the risk of fashioning God into your own image and being zealous for what you care about rather than what God cares about. Let us simply be reminded from this text that the beautiful thing about knowing God is that those who know him have a zeal for him. Knowledge of God and fervency for God should always go hand in hand. So I'll close this section with a longer quote from chapter three of Knowing God. If you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it by J.I. Packer. It'll be up on the screen. What were we made for to know God? What aims should we set for ourselves in life to know God? 
What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. John 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9, this is what the Lord says. Let not, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Hosea 6, I desired the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God. My friends, we were created to know God, to know him joyfully and with a zealful passion. So I pray that that would be true of us as a church. And how do we ultimately know God? Through his word. This happens both in community here in the church and individually in our own lives. So practically speaking, you cannot claim to know God and be ignorant of his word. I want to say that again. Practically speaking, you cannot claim to know God and be ignorant of his word. For sure, there is always a need for growth in our lives. It's even evidenced by the scholar Apollos here. But our view of God's word has to be high for us to actually know God. You ignore this book, these words right here, you're ignoring God. We all know this to be true just in our day-to-day relationships. If my wife or my kids, if I tell them that I love them, but I ignore them every time they're speaking to me, every time they want my attention, am I really evidencing any love? If we say we love God, but we ignore his revelation to us, are we really evidencing any love? No condemnation here, friends. But disciples must know their master, and we are called to know God through his word. This is in part why we structure our services the way we do, from the call to worship to what we sing as a congregation to what you hear proclaimed from the pulpit to what we sing in response to the preaching at the end. We want everything we do to be word-centered. Why? Because the scriptures are profitable not only to teach, but to quicken and to bring alive the most obstinate and hardened heart, to pry open the eyes clamped shut by willful disobedience. There is true life-giving power in the words that, that God has given to us, so may we never underestimate them. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we must know him. But secondly, we must honor him. I don't want to spend long on this because Jeff was able to hit on it last week, but briefly notice this about Apollos. For all his skill, for all his gifting, for all his probable fame in the early church, he was still humble enough to be pulled aside by a couple and further instructed. How do we bring honor to God? Do you ever think about that? How can I honor God in my life? I think that there are many answers that we can give, but I feel like one of the preeminent ones has to be when we listen to the last command that he gave his disciples. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. A disciple brings honor to his master when he or she seeks to disciple others. Aquila and Priscilla modeled this so well, but so does Apollos. He listens humbly. He receives instruction, and then he goes and proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. In this side of eternity, only God knows how many others he was able to disciple through his preaching and teaching. But the point is simple here. Be discipled, and then go disciple. 
From the business owner to the office worker to the stay-at-home mom to the college student here, you have opportunities to disciple others in your life. Don't miss out on them. Pray that God would open your eyes to see these opportunities more and more and then be willing to be used. Do you have to have all the answers? Of course not. We're not God. But be willing to honor God by seeking to disciple others as your Lord has commanded. Christ Community Church, I just want to say that it is imperative that we work hard at creating a culture of mutual discipleship here. It can't always be a pastor or an elder doing it. We have to be intentional, as Jeff talked about last week, in seeking out a mentor and seeking out an accountability relationship, someone to invest in or be invested in by for our church to truly deepen in its knowledge of God and seek to honor him by making disciples. Practically then, let me tell you one easy way to do this. I was really blessed last year by reading this short devotional book called Gentle and Lowly. Long story short, a lot of people loved it and Crossway, the publisher, because of a very generous donor to them, gave a bunch for free to churches that wanted them. So right now, they were in my office, about 200 of them, but first service took a lot. So there's some right here on the tables as you leave to the left, and you are welcome to take a few if you promise to read it with someone else. Someone inside the church or someone outside the church. They are short five or six page chapters that will remind you of Christ's heart for you and allow you to discuss that with someone else. Such a simple way to start one of these mutual discipling relationships. And when God directed correction comes into your life, I want to say this, when God directed correction comes into your life like it did for Apollos, view that as part of being a disciple. Let us be a church that is actively seeking to disciple one another and disciple those in this community. That is how we bring honor to God. And lastly, point number three, faithfully follow him. Faithfully follow him. Jesus has come as the prophesied Messiah. Therefore, repent and recognize him. Know and honor him and faithfully follow him. Chapter 18, second half of verse 27. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Chapter 19, verse 3. Into what then were you baptized, Paul asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. What does it mean to faithfully follow Jesus? Has anybody ever asked you that? You guys talk about following Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like in your life personally? Again, I think many answers from the scriptures, love of God and love of neighbor come to mind growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ from 2 Peter 3, discipling as we just looked at from the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All correct answers. But what I want to briefly talk about from this text, I think are the two parts of faithfully following Jesus, really the two time frames, beginning to follow him and then continuing to follow him. Beginning to follow This is a text that has a lot to mention about baptism, so we of course have to say something about that. For those of you who are here and you're new to Christianity, you're new to the faith, there is something that might be peculiar to you that Jesus commands his followers to do, and that is to be baptized. I assume that it happened to Apollos since he only knew of John's baptism, and it clearly happened to the disciples of John in the beginning of uh, chapter 19. 
Now, throughout this series in Acts, we have clearly taught in this series that the Holy Spirit is being given at salvation, and that it was evidenced during this time in particular signs and wonders. So my focus this morning is not on the tongues and prophecy of verse 6. I recommend going back and listening to our Pentecost sermon from Acts chapter 2 or our Samaritan sermon from Acts chapter 8, which, Acts chapter eight excuse me, which talks about the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. But the command of Jesus still stands. His followers need to be baptized. The word itself literally means to be immersed. And so here at CCC, we practice baptism by immersion. We put you under the water, we hold you down there for a while, and then we bring you back up. <laughs> Want to make sure it's good. We understand the practice, though, of baptism to be in obedience. If you're new to the faith, we really don't hold you under. I just want to say that. <laughs> we understand the practice of baptism to be in obedience to Jesus and fundamental to discipleship. Why is that? Well, I think two reasons among many stand out. First, by becoming a Christian, you belong now to a new people. Those who have believed in Christ, have trusted in him for salvation, have repented of their sins, as we talked about earlier, now no longer identify with the world and its loves and its desires and its values, but now submit their lives to Christ and what he says to love and desire and to value. So there is a new identity at stake here. And part of why it's important to be baptized in a local church is that you are proclaiming to your brothers and sisters here in this church that you belong to Christ and that your life is going to be spent in service to him. And so they see it with you, they rejoice with you, and then they come alongside you to hold you accountable to that confession. We've said it many times before, the Christian life is personal, but it is definitely not private, and that involves baptism too. You have a community here that is with you and that is also a part of that new people group. And so they will encourage you, they will strengthen you, and they will persevere in the walk with you. But secondly, baptism by immersion reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is, as Paul says in Romans 6, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In light of verse 5 then, baptism is both a looking back and a looking forward looking back to what Christ did on the cross and what that means for us today, and then looking forward to when we experience resurrected bodies that are sinless and are enjoying full fellowship with our risen Savior. Christian baptism from this text is distinct from the baptism of John in that it's not a baptism to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. It's a baptism in response to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus Christ has come as the prophesied Messiah. Therefore, if you have placed your faith in him, trusted in him alone for your salvation, and you have not been baptized, you need to be. It's not a salvation issue. This is an obedience issue. It is part of your discipleship and is part of faithfully following him. So practically speaking again, we have a baptism class next month. Hope to see you there. Secondly, continuing to follow Jesus. I understand that the majority of us in here have been baptized. And so what does this text have to tell us 
about continuing to follow Jesus. Well, again, Jeff focused on being helpful to the church last week, and I want to say clearly with him that that is for sure what it means to continue to follow Jesus. To be involved in the local church and to understand its importance in the kingdom of God is foundational to being a Christian. But from this text, I also want to draw something else out for us to be thinking on for what it means to follow Jesus day by day. It's really rooted in Paul's main question to the disciples of John, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What the New Testament clearly teaches is that the sign that you are a part of this new covenant with God, this new agreement made with God, is that you have the Holy Spirit. In previous covenants, only certain people gained access to God. In this covenant, through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, those who are now found in Christ have access to God, and he gives us his Holy Spirit to do quite a few things for us. The scriptures tell us, according to scriptures, the the Spirit regenerates us, convicts us, empowers us with gifts, leads us, makes us fruitful, enables us to fight and kill sin, intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray, guides us into all truth, and is transforming us into the image of Christ. Day by day, faithfully following Jesus means that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life accomplishing these things. Friends, more often than not, I just want to say this, faithfulness and what it means for you to be faithful is tied to your day-to-day ordinary living. The regular conversations you have with your spouse or your kids, pointing them to God and to his word. The faithfulness in sharing the gospel with a coworker who doesn't know Jesus. Serving in the local rescue mission, seeking to care for the orphans and widows amongst us. Faithfulness means doing what you can in obedience to Jesus in this particular time, in this particular place that God has sovereignly directed you to live in. It can be so easy for many of us who have been Christians for some time to look back on life and remember these pinnacle moments of our faith and praise God for those moments. But always looking back to what was or always looking forward to what one day may or may not happen is stagnating your growth as a disciple. Trust me, I know this. The Lord has disciplined me in the past year and a half. Grow where God has you here and now. Pursue daily faithfulness. Be astounded at the ordinary means of grace that God uses by his spirit to grow you and to grow his church. Singing the word, preaching the word, proclaiming the word to others. Faithfulness is a day-by-day decision aided by the Holy Spirit to grow you into the image of Christ. Tying this into Acts chapter 19, these disciples of John had a pinnacle moment. They spoke in tongues and prophesied, and for many Christians today, that is the pinnacle moment. But that was simply the starting point of their discipleship, not the ending point. Hopefully, in God's grace, they continued to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ as new disciples of Christ. And friends, the same should be said of us, that we are marked by a day-to-day faithfulness, not always looking back to what once was, not always looking forward to what may be, being faithful in the here and now where God has placed us. So in applying this to our hearts, I trust the Holy Spirit to point out where we're not obeying Christ or where we aren't faithfully following him. But let me simply say, Jesus has come as the prophesied Messiah. Therefore, repent and recognize him. Repent of your sins if you haven't. Place your faith in him. Recognize that he is your savior and that in and of yourself, you can't change it all. You're standing before God, but he can. Jesus can. 
So trust in him. Secondly, know and honor him. Pursue God passionately. Know him through his word and pray that as you do, you seek to honor him by making disciples and being discipled. Remember, knowledge of God and zeal for God should always go hand in hand. And if one is inflated over the other, then there's a problem. And lastly, faithfully follow him. Pray that God would show you by his Holy Spirit how you can be used each and every day to further his kingdom. We are called to be a help to the church like Apollos, but for Apollos as well, this looked like demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. What does faithfully following Christ look like for you? Where God has you right now. For your family, while you're at your job, in the here and now where God has providentially placed you. Seek to live day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit as you faithfully follow him. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you for your revealed word to us. I praise you that in your providence we live on this side of Christ and we have a full revelation to understand. And there are some, Father, anytime the gospel is proclaimed that will not respond. And so I just pray that by the power of your spirit, you would work on their hearts, that you would open their eyes, unclog their ears to hear and respond to this good news of Jesus Christ. God, and I praise you for so many in this room that have. I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to know and to honor you, to have a knowledge of God, but not just a a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge as well as we seek to be fervent in our spirit, fervent in the work of the Lord. God, help us to see that we do that day by day, faithfully following you in our day-to-day lives, understanding that you are in charge of growing all that we cast out. God, help us to be faithful. In your son's name we pray. Amen.